Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hi, everyone. I have a special episode for you this week, chatting with Karen Hostetler, the founder of Mountain Meadow Wool Mill. When I opened my weaving yarn shop, Mountain Meadow Wool Mill was one of the first suppliers I reached out to whom. Her dedication and commitment to local sourcing and her absolutely gorgeous range of textures and colors was exactly the kind of yarn I wanted in my new shop. So I'm really excited to have Karen on the podcast this week to talk about her journey starting her wool mill. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Karen. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm excited to talk to you. Can you start out by introducing yourself and your company, Mountain Meadow Wool Mill? Sure. Uh, so I'm Karen Hostetler. I'm the owner and founder of Mountain Meadow Wool Mill, and the company was founded in 2007. And what is it that you do? We are a yarn spinning mill, and we do custom processing and custom yarn development for a lot of people around the country, and we have our own yarn line, and we also um, sell finished goods with the yarn that we make. What is it that made you decide to get into this line of work? Uh, well, the story is kind of, um, it has a very strange trajectory, actually, Sarah. It wasn't a direct, um, you know, the, the whole process just kind of evolved over time. So in 2002, I had a really good friend, Valerie Spanos, and the two of us decided that oh, our children are growing up, let's start a little company. And we were going to do a natural goods store. You know, I used wool for years. I dabbled in weaving. I used uh, wool and children's toys. It was very Waldorf. I was a very natural mama kind of thing. And uh, so we were going to use Wyoming wool because we thought, wool is awesome and we want to have a store that incorporates that beautiful fiber so we couldn't find any anywhere we um they at that point in time wyoming the wool that was raised in wyoming was all sent overseas most of it um so we bought a bale of wool from a rancher hauled it all the way to carstairs canada over the border and had it made into yarn at custom woolen mills up there and at that point, we decided we wanted to have one of those here in Wyoming. And uh, so, long story short, by 2007, we had written two full USDA grants. Um, and we were ready to actually open the mill. And we had to secure a building and find equipment. And um, our goals became uh, branding of the wool that's raised in the Rocky Mountain West, in particular Wyoming. Uh, it has the finest, what we have the finest wool clip in the country, which means the wool is premium. Um, but most of the ranchers in the area were not being paid for that beautiful fiber, uh, a fair price. You know, it was uh, commodity driven, the wool prices were very low. We had a lot of friends who were in ranching and they were, it, the whole industry was starting to kind of fade. And we decided that the only way we were gonna sustain ranching in the state was to get um, 
a name for the wool that's in, in the area and brand it as, as a beautiful premium wool and give the ranchers more money, <laughs> basically. So that's in a nutshell, a little bit of how it started and why it started. It's such a powerful story. How did you go about learning what you needed to know to find the right equipment and, and get it going? Well, it was not done in a vacuum. There are a lot of people who know a lot of stuff about this industry. And we just started asking questions. Um, we were, we had fingers shaken at us and said we would not succeed. Um, but we just kept asking questions. Why can't we do it this way? Why not? Um, most of the wool is all sold through a process where the um, commodity price is set, usually by Australia, and then the wool buyer goes around and to the ranches and buys up um, their clip or whatever that's what their the total wool that they raise is called. And um, we wanted to work directly with the rancher and not with a wool buyer and you know, start our own pricing based on how much we could sell the yarn for. So that was the first step, getting some ranchers who were willing to um, venture out on this idea with us. And we did that by joining wool organizations, talking to the American sheep industry, the Wyoming wool growers. And then we had to also understand what running a mill is and how to get equipment. And that, um, just was a lot of phone calls. And finally, after calling several used equipment dealers in the, um, on the East Coast, one guy finally said, you need to talk to Keith Wild. He is in Canada. He's a Canadian, but he was raised in England. He worked in the textile industry for about 40 years, and he can find equipment for you. So that's what we did. And this man was a, an expert. Um, he was able to find the equipment all up and down the East Coast and then uh, train us on everything. We told him how much we needed to make. Um, our goal was pretty ambitious. We wanted to be able to process at least 20,000 pounds of wool a year. And so he, he found the equipment we needed and trained us. Uh, actually had to come and train us several times before we actually started making a yarn that was uh, good quality. <laughs> so there's a lot of different things you can make with wool. How did you decide that you wanted to sell yarn? Do you have a personal background and passion for making? Uh, yes, I do, actually. So, And I am a weaver, spinner, knitter, crocheter, um, toy maker. Uh, I do felter. I do all of that, Sarah, but I have to say none of it really well. Um, <laughs> I, I dabble in all of it. In the 1970s, I took a spinning class um, with a drop spindle, and then I was um, majoring in medicine at the University of um, Colorado and ended up taking a weaving class in the midst of all that chemistry. And I fell in love with weaving at that time um, and had to set it aside basically after I got married and started having children. I still dabbled with it, but I didn't actually ever get a loom until probably, I think it was in the late 90s. 
So I had raised my family and then I picked it all up again as far as the weaving and the spinning. Um, but I always did crochet and knit. So I loved that part of the industry and it felt very friendly to me. So Valerie and I decided that's the industry we're going to target because it, it did seem friendly. It seemed like um, this is something that wouldn't scare us away, that we could talk to people who were involved in that whole making industry and it was not threatening. And so we started going to the National Needle Arts Trade Association, um, their trade shows, and that's how we first started marketing the wool. And that was in 2008, I believe. What was it like after so many years of planning and working on this to see your first yarn start of coming out of your mill? I was in awe. I said, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. I knew it was going to be beautiful. Um, so I was in awe of it, and I have to tell you, this is a funny story. Um, we actually saved some of the first yarn we made, and we have it stored. Um, and I got it out the other day, and it wasn't very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little bit sad looking, actually. So um, we've improved our quality quite a bit, but the you know the fiber itself is lovely and beautiful, and um, we just needed to learn, and I think we've come a long way, actually. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about how you source directly from ranchers, and I'm curious if you could talk about if that's different than how most mills work and why you decided to work in this way and what impact that's having on ranchers near you and on your local economy. Well, so to begin with, in 2007, when we started working with the ranchers, um, you know, we wanted to pay them a better price. The wool prices were very low at that time. So the ranches that we worked with, they kind of are in partnership with us. They bring us, the first rancher brought us 12,000 pounds of wool. Um, we paid him over the course of three or four years for that fiber. Um, so he, he hmm. we were storing it for him. We were giving him free warehouse but we were also paying 40% more than what the market was. Um, so that made him engage in it and become kind of drawn to that whole um, idea that he could be marketing his own fiber. Um, initially we started, so we would work with, you know, we had about three or four ranches. We would trace the fiber all the way through and then we would pay them according to how many, how much we sold. Um, well, we were the first wool mill in the United States to ever trace fiber through the process. It, um, and we didn't really realize wow. at that time that that was going to be such a big thing. Uh, then suddenly consumers have started, you know, the consumer, the, the knitter, the weaver, they want to also know where their stuff comes from, just like everything else in our world, you know, our food, our everything we purchase, we want to understand the story behind it. So. It became a uh, connection with the consumer and the ranch. And that suddenly became a really big focus for how we work with the ranchers and how we um, try or, are trying to tell their story. In turn, they work with us and they say, you know, we tell them, don't put, put so much paint on the wall. When you brand it, we need to save that fiber. 
make sure you get rid of the cockleburs in your fields. You know, they are working with us to try to um, actually improve their quality. They see it. The first rancher who saw the mill creating yarn, he just stood there in awe and he said, oh, you got to keep making wow. the string stuff. You know, he didn't get the whole yarn thing, <laughs> but the idea that he was seeing his hard work um, become something really beautiful. It's something they're proud of and it's helps us helping to sustain them and their way of life. And that's really, I feel, critically important and it's really part of our mission. How do you choose which ranches you work with? Well, first of all, it was the ones who were willing to try it and also the ones that had the finest fiber. So we, um, for a rancher to become part of our producer program, they have to um, send us a core sample. Um, usually that, you know, we only look mostly at the fine wool breeds like Rambouillet, uh, we have some French Merino, Delaine Merino, Cormo, um, Targhee, we do some Columbia, but at first it has to be a fine wool breed and then they have to send us a core sample. And the core sample is um, tested at Yoka McCall in, in Colorado. And then we know for sure, you know, what the micron is, what the yield is, um, and the staple length and all of that kind of bases what if we're going to use that uh, fiber or not. Can you give listeners a mini crash course in wool and micron count and other things like that and what they should know about when they're thinking about wool? Sure. So I think more and more people are looking at the different breeds. Um, we all of our wool we source is under 22 micron. So we don't do a lot of 18. So the micron is the measurement of the diameter of a fiber of wool. Um, below 18 is called super fine. 18 to 22 to 23 is called fine. And then you get into the mediums and the coarser wools. Now the fine wools are gonna give you a soft hand. Um, they don't have as much of what they call the prickle factor, which is what makes wool itchy. Um, so by keeping our microns down, our wool is always uh, the same um, as far as, you know, the breeds are different, but you're still going to feel the same hand when you touch it. Um, we do, though, also use coarser wools, and I think you're very well aware that um, the Suffolk is a, a breed that's raised mostly for meat, but the wool itself, it's from a down breed of sheep. So it's a coarser breed, but it's great for rug weaving. And every wool has value. Um, by knowing the micron count, um, you're gonna know if it's coarse or fine. Uh, the different breeds have different attributes. Uh, Targhee is a little longer than a Rambouillet. For hand spinners, it's gonna be a little easier to spin. Um, Cormo is a very, has a real uh, strong crimp in it, which is like a little wave, like an accordion. You can see it in raw wool, but you're not going to see it in your finished yarn. But in the raw wool, you can really see this, uh, this real tight little crimp. And that is also a sign of a fine wool. Um, 
I think each breed does have its own attributes, and I, there's some great resources out there. The uh, Fleece and Fiber book by Deb Robson is really wonderful. You make a number of different lines of yarn. I wish that I could carry all of them in my shop because they all have such different and, and unique attributes. Um, but the few of them that I do carry, my customers really love working with. You mentioned that rug wool. Um, and one of the things that's really amazing, both the, the wool is a beautiful texture and really hard wearing, and also the way that you dye it, it's not a hundred percent solid color. There's some var variegation in there and it, it leads to really beautiful pooling when, um, when that's on the loom. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the dyeing processes. Sure, Sarah, I think, you know, at first we really tried to get a real solid color when we were dying. But in our dye method, it's very hands-on. And so it lends itself to every dyer has a little bit different um, touch when it comes to what they do with the yarn and the fiber. And so we started seeing that there was a really beautiful um, semi-solid uh, variation in the fiber, in the yarn when it was dyed. and we loved it and we we wanted that look. Um, it lends itself to easily to bringing in different um, dyers because everything has a little bit of a different uh, look. And just like in nature, nothing is ever solid. I feel like that, that variance gives you a depth in whether you're knitting or weaving or crocheting with it that you can't get as much in a real deeply uh, solid dyed yarn. Um, our dye process is we don't use big vats. Um, we use a big steamer, uh, a steam cabinet. So the yarn is actually, the dye is worked in by hand and then it's wrapped up in a plastic wrap and then it's put into the steam cabinet um, to set. So that's, that technique itself is giving us a lot of that variegation. What are some of the biggest challenges in running a small mill that's focused on local sourcing? Well, for one, um, well, there's a big challenge in just running a mill. <laughs> I can imagine. So, um, but working directly with ranches, you know, things change year to year. We, um, when we go out and source our fiber, we usually try to be there at the shearing um, when we get a new producer, sometimes they're not as aware of good practices. You know, the, the wool may not be cared for very well. Um, you might get a lot of bellies and tags in it. So we always try to kind of be, be there. So not only you're running the mill, but you're out there in the spring at the shearing, making sure that the wool that you get is what you want. Um, this year was the whole pricing thing, um, it was great when we could be, you know, 40% over a market cost for wool. This year, the prices are sky high. So then we have to, um, you know, we have to be able to match it. So we're matching that price. We don't ever go below a certain price, but we also cannot guarantee that you're going to get 40% over every year because the wool prices were high, so we matched it. But finding producers that are willing to bring us 5,000, 10,000 pounds of wool and be able to wait uh, maybe nine months before 
You know, we, we open a bale and we pay them when the bale's opened, but sometimes it takes nine months to get through all that wool. Um, so that's kind of a challenge. Um, finding, you know, our, our customers, that's the other one. And finding customers who are willing um, to pay a little higher price uh, because that's how we can pay our ranchers. Um, you know, we've got to be able to give people profit all up and down, all along the whole um, chain. So sometimes our prices are higher, especially for bigger companies who are wanting to start a new yarn line. And just understanding that that pricing is goes all the way back to that farmer on the on the field and you know, we're trying to keep everybody sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you talked a fair bit about the your own yarn lines, which are the yarn that I carry in my shop. Can you talk about some of the processes you work with uh, with bigger yarn brands that are working with you and that are wanting to help support local manufacturing and, and local growing? Well, we just, um, there's a several of them that are very, we work we really love working with. Um, we've done some custom yarn development for Brooklyn Tweed, um, but they ended up going with a little bit better pricing at a different mill. Um, but they are also a company that is looking to help sustain ranching and breed specific. Um, Twig and Horn is uh, another company we've done a, a yarn development for them, it's called Stonewool. It's a Cormo blend. Um, they now have um, an ongoing order front with us. Uh, we usually source Cormo for them every spring. And Plucky Knitter, that's another, I think she's in Michigan. Um, she's a dye company and um, she's been, she's starting to become a regular customer as well. We've done small lots for Madeline Tosh, another dyer. Um, Hmm, who else? I think those are the biggest names I can think of, but it's always fun to get a new company or even a new yarn shop, more and more yarn place shops or like weaving shops like you have. They, they are wanting to develop a yarn that's specific for them. And so we do that as well. You know, commitment is not as big as like a thousand pounds of wool, but maybe, you know, you can these shops will commit to a hundred pounds and then it's something they've designed and they've developed and it's their own unique blend. We're doing more and more of that as well. What are you feeling most proud of and excited about your mill these days? Well, I love the growth. Um, hmm. I, it's, uh, we are actually just kind of exponentially growing. And so we're moving, we've always done yarn um, and you know, we're a yarn mill. We're not the best at getting, creating patterns and doing the things that need to be done with, um, for most typical yarn distributors. But anyway, the mill is growing and we're adding, um, we're adding finished product development. So we'll be adding knitting machines and be creating sweaters and scarves and hats in-house for other companies across the country. There's just so little textiles left in the United States that anytime you can see growth in it, it's very exciting. 
Um, we are actually uh, have weaving um, in our radar as well, and it would be commercial weaving for blankets, bed blankets, um, similar to Pendleton. Um, I don't know if we'll ever be that big, but it's a need. A lot of ranchers want to have a blanket made out of their fiber. Hmm. And we work with a hand weaver in um, Massachusetts, but she can just do a throw and we sell, we sell out of those. We can't hardly keep them in stock. But um, so anyway, those kind of things continue to grow. Um, our, our research and development arm is continuing to grow. We're working with universities. So many of the universities in the country have totally gotten rid of their wool programs. So just the knowledge base, we want to keep it uh, in our country. And I think we feel real passionate about that. We want to keep the rancher there. We want to keep textiles here. You know, it may never be to the level it was in the um, 70s and 80s, 60s, but I think we can get at a sustainable level that's good for all. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people go if they want to learn more about Mountain Meadow Wool on social media or on the internet or also maybe in person if you're offering tours of your mill? Well, we do. We offer tours and we all summer long from Memorial Day to Labor Day, we do two tours a day at 9 a.m. and at 1.30. So if you're in this area, you should come. Um, it's very popular. People love it. We do a lot of that. We have a little retail store in the mill. And then we sell online at mountainmetalwool.com. And we have a Facebook page um, and Instagram. And we're on Ravelry um, and Pinterest and all those social media sites. <laughs> we're trying to touch it all. I'm not sure we do really well at everything, but I know we do pretty good at Facebook and Instagram right now. <laughs> and I will link to all of those in the show notes so people can easily go over and find you. And that would be great. I'm wondering before we close off, if you have any closing advice or words of wisdom specifically for weavers who are working with wool, good practices for using it, et cetera, any advice you have? Uh, well, I think weaving, this is a great time to be a weaver. Uh, there are so many beautiful, talented um, weavers out there. And the, you know, in the seventies when I was weaving, it was very hippie, uh, very, it wasn't, it wasn't really beautiful, the weaving that was being done. But um, I think now is an exciting time. There's so many beautiful yarns available. And I think the thing that weavers um, have the ability to use all kinds of weights of yarn in their projects and create, you know, things that range from a rug underfoot to a shawl around your shoulders. And I think that's what's really wonderful about weaving. And so don't be afraid to experiment and try something you didn't think you would ever do if you were knitting it. Um, weaving gives you just the opportunity to try new and different fibers. And they always look so much different in a weaving than they do when they're knitted. Um, so don't be afraid to experiment. And uh, I think taking classes in weaving is wonderful and everyone needs to have their own little loom. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I have a big loom in my office that I got in New Mexico from a tapestry weaver and uh, 
I thought maybe if I put it in the office, I would have more time to weave. Did and, that work out? And not so well, but I do always want it set up um, so that people, I have people come in and they like to try it. So at least it's getting used that way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for making such beautiful wool yarn for all of us to get to weave with. I well, really appreciate it. Thank you, Sarah, for all you do. I think you have a wonderful, wonderful business. You're doing great. That's a wrap. To see photos of Mountain Meadow Wool Mill and the ranches Karen works with, you can find the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 35. I mean, seriously, if you can listen to this entire episode and not immediately want to go look at pictures of the sheep, I admire your fortitude. This week's featured yarn is, of course, Karen's wool yarn from Mountain Meadow Wool Mill. It's truly as lovely and special as Karen has been describing, and I carry it in a number of different weights and a full rainbow of colors. The fingering weight yarn is strong enough for warp and soft enough to be worn as a scarf next to your skin, which makes it an A-plus fall scarf yarn in my book. I also carry that Suffolk tapestry yarn Karen mentioned in our conversation, which has been flying off the shelves. My customers have designed a number of stunning pieces with Karen's wool and generously share their project notes and patterns. You can also see these ideas and kits linked to on the website at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 35. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Jane Stafford. As many of you are very well aware, I'm sure, Jane is a much beloved teacher and weaver in our community. In our conversation, we discuss why decades of teaching weavers has made her even more passionate about our craft and why she created her online weaving guild. Tune in next Monday to hear that conversation. And until next time, happy weaving.